As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Cathonia, the world of the dark feminine. Hello and welcome to Cathonia, the podcast dealing with the dark feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. Uh, This week we are going to take a turn back to ancient Greece. And I want to talk about a very specific type of spirit um, from from ancient Greek. Uh, I guess you could call it spirit lore or um, ghost lore. And um, I'm going to I'm going to start by telling you uh, the different uh, types of ghost figures that there are in um, in Greek myth and in Greek um, Greek folk belief. And then I'm going to talk about, um, and then I'm going to talk specifically about this one particular type, which I have covered to some degree. Uh, I mean, there, there's some overlap with things I have discussed in the episode that I did um, a couple of years ago on the Hanging Virgins. Um, that might be another uh, place that I would I would reference after this if you would uh, want to learn more about this topic. But this is going to be a specific type of ghost. Now, just to um, tell you there's at least uh, four different types of ghosts that are mentioned um, in ancient Greek writings. Um, One is the Biothanatoi, which is those dead by violence. Okay, those are battle dead and executed criminals. This is from Dan Ogden's book on um, ghosts and witchcraft uh, in ancient Greece and Rome. And then there's the Agamoi, which is those dead before marriage, of which this is this particular ghost type of ghost I'm going to talk about is part of that class. Uh, both male and female ghosts could be assigned this category, although female ones were regarded as particularly bitter insofar as marriage and motherhood um, consequent upon it were a woman's defining rights and antiquity. And then there's Atafoi, which is those who are unburied and don't go through burial rites, and so of course they cannot achieve rest. And... Um, and the fourth type of a ghost, or really restless dead is the correct term here, is the one we are talking about, is the aoroi um, or the aorai, which is, we're going to talk specifically about the aorai, which is the feminine version of this. And that is the untimely dead. Um, those who cheated of their full stint of life bitterly stayed back to haunt the land of the living, which they had been deprived. In theory, anyone who died of anything other than natural causes in old age could generate a ghost um, uh, called an, you know, an, uh, an Aoros, though as a class they tended to be conceptualized primarily as the ghosts of children or babies. Okay, 
Um, now, yeah, the aori is is probably a broader term, and we're gonna again we're gonna use the uh, the feminine ending, not the oi, but the ai, because I want to make reference to um, the category of restless spirit that is related to women in particular. And in this definition, and I'm going to use Sarah Isles Johnson's definition here, um, her book is, and I've mentioned this one before, is called The Restless Dead, Encounters Between the Living and Dead in Ancient Greece. And this comes largely from Chapter 5. Okay, her notes from, um, which is called Childless Mothers and Blighted Virgins. Okay. So, okay, the way that Sarah Isles Johnston uses the term AORI uh, for the purposes of this book is to talk about um, women who die before they can bear children. And, uh, and, and the Aori, one of the, the features that they have is oftentimes they will steal children or, or kill children um, or, other, or other young women. Okay? It's not just babies, but it's other young women. And thus, as she says, stopping the reproductive uh, process at both ends. So um, you have this... Uh, this particular class of being uh, that is that is a restless spirit, and the spirit is restless because they died before they got to fulfill their, um, I don't know, their destiny. Their at that time it would have been viewed as their destiny, or as their uh, their function in terms of becoming mothers and having children. Um, it's important to recognize that in ancient Greece, the oikos or household was was central. It was extremely, extremely important, and a lot of these myths can't be understood unless they're understood in term of the fa- in terms of the family dynamic and the concept of family that they had at that time. Now, certainly in ancient Greece, before you get into societies that are um, perhaps more diversified, um, y- you know, although you might still probably have seen this in Athens, in ancient Greece, the the oikos okay if you think about it is the time is is before the time of um having you know perhaps a single a single king of a um particular uh, of a country or something like that that's time you had more like tribal kings you had chieftains really is what they were uh for instance when you read the iliad you have this 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 catalog of ships you have this um you have all of these generals coming from all over the place and even though you see um, generals like Agamemnon or Odysseus um, or Diomedes coming forward as sort of um, prominent figures, really what they all are are kings or tribal leaders of all of their their particular domains. Um, and that, that's the concept that we're working with here. Um, so in other words, you have the tribal king. The tribal king would marry a woman of his appropriate class and station, and they would, and her job was to bear children and to extend the family line. Um, the other podcast that talks about this is the one on the Arrhenius, or the Furies, because the Furies are a class, you know, the, these three scary-looking women, their main function is to punish any transgressions that have to do with the family, particularly the killing of the mother, which is, um, because to kill the mother is to, to cut off the um, the line of the family. I mean, not that the king couldn't marry again, but it changes the line. Things are different. So, you know, so there's the idea of continuing the family line, that the, that the household and having those children was very important. Um, why is it so important? Um, probably 
as a way of consolidating power, of extending the line, and perhaps also of a way of achieving immortality in a culture that does not um, that does not believe in <clears throat> excuse me that does not you know that that does not believe in this idea when you die that you're going to live some kind of immortal life among the gods in a place called heaven or anything like that. Um, there, there, there wasn't that concept. As I have mentioned, everybody went to Hades, didn't matter who you were, what you did. Everyone had the same fate after death, even though some of the demigod heroes, you know, got a little bit nicer um, deal after death. Yeah, most people, you were just, you were just dead and that was it. Had nothing to do with morality, nothing to do with how you behaved in life. Um, but you, you could undergo these particular kinds of punishment. <laughs> Dying was one of these kinds of punishments, but... Um, Again, like per being pursued by the Arrhenius might be a way that your, uh, you know, any any crime against the family might be might be punished. So in this case, okay, the Aori actually have um, have a lot of these traits, have a lot of traits that, um, you know, that that <clears throat> they're going to be interesting when we we talk about what their similarities are. Now, sometimes they are referred to as child killing demons. But as Sarah Isles Johnson explains, that's not really a great description. Because first of all, they're not all necessarily child-killing. Some of them just kill virgin women. Okay? And, um, and some of them, there's, there's some, they're often described, you know, the names that are given to certain ones that are described, we see the Lamia, we see Gelo, we see Marmo, or Marmaluke, and, uh, and also the, um, I think I already said the Lamia. But those are the... You know, Lamia, Gelo, and, and um, Marmo tend to be the main sort of archetypes of these restless dead. And, um, and so it's assumed that because they were not able to fulfill their feminine role in life, that they try to stop other women from doing that in death. And in fact, sometimes they or I are considered to be the companions of the Arrhenius. The Arrhenius are accompanied by um, these women so who... In, in their loss, now go about seeking to, um, to punish other women. Um, although whether or not it is seen, to, whether or not their presence with the Arrhenius um, is really that of one of, um, necessarily like a moral one, as if, oh, you know, they're going to get women who transgress a certain, certain rule. Although I imagine, um, you know, th there were certain protections against these kinds of spirits. Um, but their description is rather interesting. Now, first of all, I just want to mention that the Aori, along with other what we think of now as demonic figures, see, the, the word demons, the other problem, because in ancient Greece, uh, demon comes from daemon, which is really a messenger spirit. It's not an evil spirit, per se. And in terms of our definition of the word demon, there's all different kinds of classes of being, according to our modern definition of that term, that ancient, there's a lot of ancient Greek figures, the harpies, for example, um, you know, which have, you know, feet of the bird and, you know, bird's wings and the head of a woman might be classified as a type of demon. But they're, they're really just different types of beings. And this idea of demons isn't really what's there. It's more of a sense of, as, as um, Sarah Isles Johnston says, there's successful life and there's successful death. You can have a successful life and do all the things that you're expected to do. And also, it's expected that you're going to die in a certain state at a certain time, presumably of old age from natural causes. Or, and on your death, you're going to receive certain rights to make sure that um, you are properly buried and um, 
you know, taken care of. And so therefore you are not, um, you know, so yeah, and that way you successfully cross into the underworld and you're over where you're supposed to be. This type of, of, of dead being is a problem because it didn't have, they didn't have a successful life. Okay, in this case, these are women who did not um, fulfill their role of being married and having children. Okay, um, and they and thus they don't have a successful death either. They're because they're kind of stuck in this in between place, and so that's why they are considered to be wandering spirits, and and they wander with the Arrhenius. Um, if you go back to the ones, also the one, uh, okay, the Arrhenius, Artemis, and also the Hanging Virgins. Those are three podcasts that I did that that look at this subject, because certainly there are a lot of rights to the god, the virgin goddess Artemis. Because um, Artemis herself, um, now she's a goddess, of course, but and she's an Olympian goddess, but she has a lot to do with um, cutting girls off before, you know. In other words, she 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 values virginity and chastity, so she gets very angry when these girls um, are, are married off and lose their virginity. So there has to be certain rights to appease Artemis, so that she'll allow women to make that that transition into adolescence. It's like you have to worry about Artemis um, plaguing you, um, but. Even without Artemis, now Artemis, that, 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 that seemed to be sort of more of the natural danger of perhaps going into womanhood, perhaps giving birth for the first time, because giving birth, of course, is only the dangerous act. Um, you know, there, there's all of these, um, these critical moments in what they defined in the, the social female life in ancient Greece and within the context of the oikos and the tribal household in particular. Um... Okay, so let's talk about these AORI. Uh, I'm going to talk about um, Lamia and, and Gelo. Now, uh, Walter Burkert, who's a very um, well-known historian of Greek religion, um, he tended to say he tended to think that Lamia and Gelo, in particular, were derived from Near Eastern demons called Lamashtu and Galu. Now, um, Lamashtu is defined as a, a female demon. I'm reading this from Wikipedia, a monster or malevolent goddess or demigoddess who menaced women during childbirth. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And if possible, kidnap their children while they were breastfeeding. She would gnaw on their bones and suck their blood as well as 
being, being charged with a number of other evil deeds. She was a daughter of the sky god Anu. Okay. She's supposed to be a mythological hybrid with a hairy body, a lioness head, donkey's teeth and ears, long fingers and fingernails, and the feet of a bird with sharp talons. She is often shown standing or kneeling on a donkey, nursing a pig and a dog, and holding snakes. Okay. And that supposedly she has some resemblance to the Mesopotamian Lilith um, as well in, in terms of the way she's um, described. So as we see, this is, again, there's not, we, we have two elements here. We have not only someone who menaces women, women during childbirth, um, but also who not only kidnaps the children, but feeds on them. Okay, so there's a devouring element here. Now, Galu is, um, a, they, are, they were demons that hauled unfortunate victims off to the underworld. They were one of seven devils, or the offspring of hell, of Babylonian theology that could be appeased by sacrifice of a lamb at their altars. The goddess Inanna was pursued by Galu demons after being escorted from the underworld by Galatura and Kuryata. Uh, in the descent, it stated the demons know no food, know no drink, eat no flower offering, drink no libation. They never enjoy the pleasures of marital embrace, never have any sweet children to kiss. They snatch the sun from the man's knee. They make the bride leave the house of her father-in-law. Okay, so you can see why Burkert thinks there's a connection between these figures and these Aori figures in Greek um, folklore and myth. However, um, Sarah Isles Johnston cautions against, as, as she puts it, I um, just want to find the, uh, the reference I have here. Yeah, cautions that you should not seek genealogy where there is only similarity. Um, these cultures all did tend to resemble each other, um, we see this a lot. For example, we see a lot of Babylonian Sumerian belief um, trickling over into, um, what you call it, into, you know, into uh, the Jewish religion in particular. Um, there's there's a, there's a lot more similarity there than than people realize, not just in the flood myth. Um, but that said, um, you know, you you don't know how much of it was originally there among the original people of Greece, uh, what we think of now as Greece at the time. And she notes um, on page 170 of this, she says, the Greeks tend to blame darker, mysterious things on, quote-unquote, Persians, Chaldeans, or Egyptians. So, um, yeah, so she is, um, you know, so there's this tendency to say that something came from the outside. Certainly this is definitely true of the idea of uh, certain magical practices, necromancy, uh, goetia, Things like that, which were practiced in in ancient Greece, were said to have come from Persia in particular. So, um, so they are, you know, so there, so there's a tendency to do that. But again, there's still a question there as to how how much of that actually originated uh, in the area itself. It, it seems to be there seems to be something um, again, being we're talking about feminine forces that are archetypal. There is probably something embedded in human consciousness, collective human consciousness, even at that time, um, that deals with this idea. And to look a little bit more at that, um, we want to talk about, we talked about the oikos of the family, but there's different forces that operate to destroy the family or destroy the expansion. If we think about the idea of expansion or expansiveness um, as, um, you know, is having to do with, with bearing children and having, having your offspring throughout the world and, you know, marrying in with other tribes and being related. So everybody gets to expand, expand, expand. We have more people 
and um, more interconnections. And the idea, of course, is that you, you know, you go outside your own tribe and you expand by becoming involved with, um, you know, intermarriage between tribes or between places. Okay. So the things then that we see, and we see this in Greek mythology quite often, are the forces of incest, okay, which is where it's kept within the family, which as we know is a biological no-no um, for a lot of reasons. But if we're just simply going to look at it in terms of this idea of the family as a concept, that is a way of limiting the family by not, not propagating, not bringing in other elements into the gene pool. And um, now you see it happen in Greeks uh, among the gods, but when it happens among people, it's a very, very different situation. Um, you know, whenever you have these kind of, for example, okay, what's an example of an incestuous um, child? Uh, Aegisthus, okay? When um, Agamemnon goes away to the Trojan War, and uh, he ends up sacrificing his daughter Iphigenia to get favorable winds, he tricks Clytemnestra into bringing her, and then then sacrifices her, or she's turned into a deer, or, or whatever, you know, whatever version of the story. Nonetheless, Clytemnestra is really unhappy, and she... Um, wants to get revenge. There's also the idea within that same family, which is the house of Atreus, um, between, um, Aegisthus and, uh, Thaistes, there's the, um, there was a fight over who was going to be the king, you know, which of the brothers was going to get the kingship. And that's another whole long myth. But in any case, Aegisthus get, gains the kingship. Uh, Thaistes steals it from him first, but then it's given back to him. And he ends up inviting Thaistes to a banquet, but then he's murdered and, and cooked and killed Thaistes' son, which, by the way, that's another force, cannibalism, which we'll talk about. Um, but Thaistes is told by the Oracle of Apollo that the way to remedy this is to, um, uh, to sleep with his own daughter and to produce a son, um, which is um, uh, Aegisthus. Sorry, I, I've got... Um, I'm, I'm mixing the names up here. It's, Atri- it's um, Atreus and Thaistus. And then Thaistus' son with his daughter is called um, Aegisthus. And so Aegisthus goes off and while, while Agamemnon is away at war. And Agamemnon is the son of Atreus. Okay. Uh, and while he's gone, uh, Clytemnestra and Aegisthus get together and they plot to kill Agamemnon and Aegisthus is now going to take over. But when he does this, it leads to all kinds of corruption. It leads to Aristes killing his mother and then the Furies pursuing him. But basically, it essentially wipes out the line of Atreus, this whole way of behaving. So there's this idea of these, these incestuous and cannibalistic forces. Cannibalism is often, we often see it as, in, in Greek myth, as the father devouring the son. So again, there's, there's a sense of we're not going to let the family line continue. The father swallows the son in, in the way that Kronos swallowed his children. You know, it's the, um, we're not going to allow the line to propagate. Similarly, the girl whose um, father locks her up in a, in a tower somewhere and says, you know, I'm not going to let any man marry you. Um, again, that's, that's the feminine form of uh, that, that, almost that kind of devouring or repressing. Um, probably, you know, psychoana- um, Freud and so forth are probably related in some way to the Oedipal complex. But you have this idea, in all of these cases, you see what the common theme is. It's we're shutting the family off. Um, We're not allowing for that expansion. In some way, we are corrupting the line, and then the line dies out. And that 
it seems to be one of the worst things because now now it's like a true death. I mean, the body dies, that's a normal thing, and it happens, but your way of living on is through the family. So uh, just like in ancient Egypt, okay, the, the worst thing that could happen to you would not that you would be tortured in life after death, it's that demons would kill your soul and you wouldn't exist anymore. I mean, that was the worst thing. Not existing anymore is one of the worst things. So the idea of these devouring beings was a very serious one to them. And the idea of a woman of, of ha as having to fulfill the function of having children was considered to be of utmost importance. And for her not to do that, um, it's interesting because they say, you know, it's almost, um, well, I'm, I'm going to, I want to read a little bit about that. I, I don't want to go into that, but, but there's a, um, that, that leads to a whole other, um, a whole other can of worms, I guess you should say. Um, in fact, I think I want to, I would like to read that to you from here. Um, let me just find my page. Okay. So, so Sarah Isles Johnston in this book is referring to, um, the, the, the Greek Aori, which she says that, um, Geludes, Lamei, Mormones, and other types of Aore, which has already killed, ba killed babies and women, already moves them, of course, into the realm of the demonic. They are utterly inimical to the goals of a human society, and no good Greek woman would ever dream of imitating them. The etiological stories about some of the mythic crystallizations of these Aori delimited the acceptable behavior of a Greek woman even more strictly, however. Zenobius tells Gello's story as follows. Fonder of children than Gello is a saying applied to women who died prematurely, to those who are fond of children or those who are fond of children but ruin them by their upbringing. For Gello was a maiden, and because she died prematurely, uh, the lesbians, meaning those from the Isle of Lesbos, say that her ghost haunts little children, and they also blame her for the deaths of those who die prematurely. Um, Hesychius also reports that Gello died unmarried. Our second Aore, Lamia, does manage to conceive and give birth, but she fails as a mother because her children die early in life, usually due to the wrath of Hera, which we talked about um, earlier um, in, in June, jealous of Lamia's relationship with her husband Zeus. Uh, not normal, uh, and also a, a, a very common theme. The fullest um, version of Lamia's story is given by Diodorus Siculus. And he says, at the base of this Libyan mountain was a large cave thickly covered with ivy and bryony, which according to myth had been born Lamia, a queen of surpassing beauty. But on the count of the savagery of her heart, they said that the time had elapsed since it transformed her face into a bestial aspect. For when all of her children had been born to her had died, weighed down with misfortune and envying the happiness of other women and their children, she ordered that newborn babies be snatched away from their mother's arms and straightaway slain. Wherefore, among us... Even down to the present generation, the story of this woman remains among the children, and her name is the most terrifying to them. Other sources for the Lamia myth make it clear that in the standard tradition, Lamia herself killed the children, rather than commanding others to do so. The same story is told by the historian Doris of Samos, but with one important variation. Herod did not kill Lamia's children, but rather drove Lamia to kill them. This reminds us of Mormo's myth, for which we have one source only. Um... Aristides speaks of Mormo, whose name frightens the children who hear it. They say she was a Corinthian woman who, one evening, purposefully ate her own children and then flew away. Forever thereafter, whenever mothers want to scare their children, they invoke Mormo. The similarity between Mormo and that of Lamia is noted by Ascolaeus, who elsewhere in the passage calls Mormo a type of Lamia. Now, Ascolaeus, as I mentioned, is one who um, annotates or footnotes um, another work. 
Um, the Scholaeus uh, to Theocritus' uh, idol explains that the poet's reference to Mormo by saying that Mormo is just another name for Lamia, as is Gelo, and then telling an abbreviated version of Diodorus' Libyan story. Equations of two or all of these creatures are found in ancient sources as well. Such equa uh, equations should not surprise us. After all, in at least two cases, probably all three, the names, quote-unquote, are in reality adjectives that describe the ghost's qualities. Mormones are fearsome ones, and Lamiae are devourers. All these myths express the belief that they or I have their origin in mortal women who died before they'd born or successfully nurtured children. Thus they suggest it's not enough simply for women to hold back from the overtly inhuman act of killing children if they want to retain membership in the human race. They must also become successful mothers. Failure to do so is tantamount to murder. Ooh. In other words, the myths deliver the same message that a Greek woman heard constantly from other sources. Her goal in life was to become a mother. Failure or refusal to meet this goal was virtually an attack against the most important structure by which human culture organized itself, the family. Okay. Loaded right there, right? Now, it's funny. I, I know in other podcasts I have um, talked about the tendency that people have to um, hate women who don't have children. Um, I think I had mentioned probably more than once a New York Times article that referred to a survey about, um, uh, you know, looking at, you know, talking about different types of behaviors and ethics and so forth. And what, what, one, at least one of the things that came out of that survey is that more people. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus um felt that women who chose not to have children uh, in some cases, they, they, they ranked them as worse than serial killers. And we're sitting here going, why in the world would you do that? Like, why do you care whether a woman has children or not? And you wonder if psychologically it goes back to this un uh, unconscious archetype of the family and what the family is supposed to be. Um, I think when we step outside that, we are now stepping into liminal territory, which, by the way, is one of the qualities of the AORI. Um, they, as she mentions... Um, they're more, she, <clears throat> the Aori are more frightening because they're liminal. They're on the boundary between two things. And, be, and not, they're both and neither at the same time. And to allow such a thing upsets the social and cultural norm. Now, I suppose you could see this in a society where, you know, perhaps, you know, again, this is a time maybe a lot of women did die in childbirth, um, you know, where, where childbirth was dangerous, certainly. Uh, so a lot of these things, you know, so it became very, very, you know, protecting the child and protecting birth became very, very important. Nowadays, in a, in a world that's probably overpopulated, we don't care as much about whether or not somebody has a child. 
it's not necessary. It's no longer that the biology is not the destiny. We no longer look at women in that way. But this this shows you how this particular folklore of the dark feminine uh, grows up, in at least on a social level, around the idea that, um, it, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, archetypal importance of the family as the key to immortality. So to, to, uh, um, to willfully not have children is to basically willfully say, um, I'm, I'm looking to kill my family. You know, that's, that, that's the way it's viewed, um, which is a bizarre idea now. But that may be, we have to consider that that may be where that idea originates. It no longer is valid in our modern culture. But um, you can see where, where this would, you know, where this has become an issue at this particular period of time. So, um, and, and, and let's listen to some of the attributes of the Aori. Okay, first of all, their traits, their traits as described by Sarah Isles Johnson in, in various places. I'm, I'm summarizing because I don't want to just sit here and read her chapter. But their traits are ugliness, uh, hermaphroditism. So in other words, they're, they're often described as having testicles or as having a, what they call a stick or a phallus. So they're female, but they've also got like male genitalia. Uh, filthiness, they're usually dirty and they have dirty habits. They are shapeshifters. And in some cases, they're described as part animal. Um, uh, either lupine or equine. So they're either associated with horses or they're associated with werewolves, okay? Which is, which is interesting because werewolf um, mythology or, or, you know, iconography uh, often has to do with, um, I mean, again, it's related to that cannibalism idea, the idea of cutting off the family. So this is like a female werewolf that uh, may devour children. Um, if we know that the original, um, Lycos story that we talk about, Ovid talks about, is you have the king, um, you know, Jupiter, king of the gods, um, comes to visit, and of course he's recognized and honored, but the one king decides, you know, you know, who's filled with hubris, thinks, I'm not going to honor you, and decides to test him by taking one of his prisoners, cooking and killing him, and and feeding him at a banquet, you know, and so, um, Jupiter retaliates by turning them into wolves, so in other words, um, it's, it's funny how the wolf in this becomes uh, representa- uh, representative of that devouring and destructive nature of, of, of humans, the, the, the bestial one that would allow you to do that. You hear all about kind of these, um, these stories of cannibalism and the way humans can behave in ways that, you know, I mean, there's plenty of horror movies about, you know, cannibalistic uh, beings and I also think of the Scottish legend of the the Sawney Bean family uh, which were a, a group of um, a family that lived in a cave and, and abducted passers-by and cooked and killed and ate them you know and the way in which um, cannibalism potentially could drive one to madness you know, eating eating human flesh in the same way it can happen <clears throat> um, like if you think of mad cow disease when they start feeding cows other cow parts um, you know, it, these are all things that are biologically, I mean, of course, they wouldn't have necessarily known that the way we do with the sciences at this time, but there was an understanding that these things were against human biology, that they, um, that they, you know, they, this, this did not, this did not work to propagate the human species and in fact could produce something potentially quite monstrous. Um, so, 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 okay, so we're talking about that, um, just see if I can find my reference here. Um, okay. So, 
just to read this from Sarah Isles Johnston, she talks about um, uh, Aori are generally described as ugly. Indeed, the periomographers tell us that Lamia's ugliness was proverbial. Mormo's name, which means frightful, conveys the same idea. Lamia is portrayed as having disgusting personal habits. Aristophanes describes her as farting in public and having filthy testicles. As noted earlier, scholars cannot agree on the origin of the name Gallo, but it seems likely the Greeks would have heard it in allusion to the root words meaning grin and laugh. Actions that distorted the face in a manner perceived as unfeminine and even threatening, as the horrible leer of the Greek Gorgon demonstrates. We also see that facial expression in the Sheila Nagig, and also in the, in the figure of Baobo, who actually makes uh, Demeter laugh but she has these kind of weird leering facial expressions. But nonetheless, if you've ever seen anybody make those kind of faces, it is uh, a tad uncanny. Sometimes the Aore went behind beyond simple ugliness. Lamia's dirty testicles, obviously, suggest she was far from a normal woman. Nor did she have testicles alone. The 5th century comic poet Crates portrays Lamia as having a staff. Elsewhere in comic theater, um, scutale is used as slang for phallus and a passage from Aristophanes that clearly alludes to Crates' earlier description of Lamia, um, the variant uh, schoolaton, that, that's the word that means staff, seems to be identically used. Some women are busily disguising themselves as men. One woman shows others the splendid scutalon she has stolen from her sleeping husband, and this follows immediately on other women's proud, proud display of their walking sticks. Okay? And you may recall there's a legend from um, even medieval lore and time of witches stealing the phalluses of men at night and you keeping them as pets. Um, that, that, yeah, that's an allusion to women who have too many masculine tendencies. In other words, women who are far too independent. Okay? So this is uh, rather interesting. Um, there's also, because some of these, because um, the origin of the... Um, Lamia story is in Libya, there may also be a racist element to it too, because it may be assumed that at least the, one of the versions of Lamia, or at least the way she's um, shown, is of course as, a, as an African woman. So, um, you know, so that, you know, so even though it's, it's been said that the Greeks were not racist, they were just, they just discriminated against anyone who didn't speak their language uh, in, in the ancient times, but yeah, it's quite possible that they were. Um, that there, there is definitely some, some racism here, particularly against um, African women. Um, you know, who, you know, then of course they're showing somebody who has a uh, belly sagging over their groin, breasts are pendulous, and fang-like teeth. Um, and they said in this particular, there's a particular um, fifth century uh, lichthios where they're, she's shown that way, but the coloring they use is that for, for Libyan people. So that's why, that's why I say this. I don't know whether that was really a standard I, I don't think necessarily that the, the Lamia had to be a, a black woman, but, um, you know, it, it doesn't, um, I mean, it, 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 it plays into the idea of those who, who did not look like the majority or behave in a certain social way as, as being treated as this kind of outcast and monstrous people. Um, okay, so just to quote Sarah Isles Johnson again, like her ugliness and filthiness, Lamia's hermaphrodism obviously runs counter to the standard of the desirable woman. But in addition, hermaphrodism made Lamia disconcerting in a way she could never simply be as an ugly woman or ugly man because she failed to fit neatly into either of the sexual categories. And this has a whole lot of implication, too, for the way that people treat non-binary or transgender people. The idea of um, there's somehow something wrong with the idea that you are not one sex or the other. Um, or that you're both somehow. Uh, Shape-shifting and partial um, theriomorphism 
two other traits through which demons flout categories are frequently associated with the Aori as well. Mormo is described as, by Arina as having a face that changes constantly. All the Aori were, according to their myths, once women, sometimes, um, and sometimes were portrayed as having retained human traits. Yet Lamia is also called a beast, Therion. The second part of Mormo's common alternative name, Mormoluke, means she-wolf, and thus implies that she is to be imagined as a werewolf. Theocritus describes Mormo as a horse. Arina's description of Mormo as having big ears and running around on all fours would accord with her portrayal as either a wolf or a horse. The, uh, um, Strix frequently is pictured as part woman and part owl or other bird of prey. This is another type of Aori trait that uh, other Greek Aori also display. Lamiae are shown as birds in a 5th century CE mosaic, and several Byzantine sources describe geludes as flying. The Greek association of Aori with nocturnal birds of prey is hinted at in a myth that goes back at least to the 6th century poetess Corinna. The infanticidal minyads become a night bird or a bat or an owl or a crow. Okay? Um... So you have this idea of um, the bird of prey. That may be a, a reference back to the Babylonian Lamash too, um, as we mentioned, is also re represented with uh, the bird's feet or the, like a raptor. The horse is probably a reference back to Poseidon and Poseidon's um, rather dark sexual escapades because Poseidon's associated with the horses. We know that he rapes Demeter in the form of a horse, and there's another version of the Medusa story in which he attacks her in the form of a horse. Okay. Um, so, uh, and of course, the, um, uh, you know, uh, the, um, let's see, uh, well, and, and yeah, and the Arrhenius in this case, he, he ref uh, she makes reference to the Arrhenius, but she was referring to Demeter, the form of Dem Demeter Arrhenius, okay, um, which is the, the furious form of Demeter as she's searching for Persephone, and, uh, and she takes the form of a horse. So it says this, this may be reference to those, those darker and chthonic elements, um, of, of them. And of course, the idea of the wolf and their cannibalism, as I had mentioned, uh, she, she discusses here as well. Um, so, yeah, so you have this idea of these women who don't behave or look like women. They either transgress the categories associated with women, or they are both male and female in their attributes. Um, which is really, which is which is really very interesting. Um, maybe not surprising uh, in in the what and what they tend to represent. So and so again, it reinforces the idea that women who are not mothers and who don't behave in normal what they call normal feminine ways or normative feminine ways of having children and getting married and all that fun stuff um, are considered to be. Uh, are equated with these kinds of monstrous women or, or have um, the, uh, the, there's the threat of them becoming like these monstrous women. So for example, if you had a young girl who behaved in a very, um, in a way that was, you know, very disobedient and perhaps flouting or maybe sexually permissive, uh, she might be seen as, um, you know, one who might, who might end up be a vic being a victim of, of one of these Aori or, and then may perhaps becoming one herself. Um, now, uh, oh, there was another association here I wanted to talk about, and that's between the Aori and, and goats. Um, and I mentioned this because we tend to view, um, we not only look, we talk about what we think of as quote unquote base sexuality as relating to goats, i.e., you know, Pan and similar figures, even, you know, even Dionysus to some degree, as there's some, you know, 
is, is his connection with the centaurs and um, the uh, satyrs uh, is also representative of that raw natural sexuality. Um, here she says on page 177, many different types of demons in contemporary Greece, including the Lamias, um, Kamatsurukoi, and Nereadis, are frequently described as part goat. Goats are notoriously difficult to manage. For a culture in which herding is important, the goat is a potent symbol of trouble and possible loss of livelihood. This rather broad connotation makes the goat a, su a symbol suitable for a variety of demons. But other symbols expressive of different anxieties are sometimes attached to the same demons as, as is the goat symbol. Um, so they were talking about an aradia as someone having abnormally elongated thighs, which is somehow associated with sexual deviancy. deviancy. And um, so it's, uh, so she does, I mean, this doesn't necessarily automatically associate that with the AORI, but, um, but we do see this in other types of, of female demon from that, or what we now would call a demon from that time period. So that association with the, with the goat, um, as, as one, yeah, as one that is actually almost too free or, or difficult to rein in. So that's just it, that, that sort of free aspect of the goat, that, that, you know, it's difficult to herd them, difficult to rein them in, and the inability to do so can create trouble. So you see them as, a, as it being almost a metaphor for all of this. And of course, we know that the, uh, the Jews would use the, the scapegoat, um, you know, the, the sins of the community would be put on the scapegoat and it would be sent out in exile into the wilderness. Um, and of course, there's, there's a whole history that's completely outside of the scope of this podcast and that relationship to what eventually becomes our idea of Satan. Um, but you, but you know, you have this idea of one who is rebellious and one who is free. And this person is seen as a devourer, as a threat to the unit that expands. So it's not surprising, and this is the last thing I want to talk about, is the way that they already are blamed for reproductive failure. Okay. Um, frequently, I have a note in here about this. Um, let me find that. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, she says here, in the course of describing the normative force of the Aore, I have temporarily left aside the fact that she helped to explain phenomena we would call miscarriage, toxemia, stillbirth, puperal fever, and sudden infant death syndrome. At first glance, this may not seem to require much investigation. Ghostly explanation for illnesses are often dismissed on the assumption that they arise naturally in societies where medical and scientific knowledge is rudimentary. Um, yet, in fact, other non-demonic explanations of illness and misfortunes are usually available even in traditional cultures. Illnesses can be blamed on the magical attacks of other mortals, for example, or on a god's anger. In some culture, illnesses are blamed on the moral misconduct of someone close to the victim, each illness being linked to a specific form of misconduct. For the African lele, the deaths of parturient women and infants are assumed to be due to adulterous behavior within the tribe. Following such a death, the adulterers are sought out and punished. Okay. So, yeah, so we have this idea of them not only being blamed for reproductive failures, but you also have this idea of witchcraft being performed. Um, one prominent example we see of this is um, <clears throat> Hermione in um, uh, in the play. Um, oh, goodness, why am I not thinking of the name of the play? Um, it's one of the Trojan War plays, uh, and she mentions it here, too. So let me just go back. Um, I don't know why. My brain is not entirely working today. Um, but it's uh, Andromache. Thank you. I knew it was like the A name. I can't think of it. 
it was like the time I was teaching a class and I was trying, I, I was trying to say a Hippolytus and I kept saying, wanting to say Horace. I'm like, no, they're, they're not the same. Okay. Andromache, who was the wife of, um, the uh, Trojan War hero, uh, Hector. And Hector, of course, was killed and she was taken back as a slave, um, and, uh, and concubine, uh, of, uh, Apollo's son. And, uh, but when he goes away, uh, Hermione, who is the actual wife, um, uh, hates her because Andromache is actually able to bear children and she's not. So she accuses Andromache of putting witchcraft on her. Okay. And, um, and of course Andromache says, no, it's just because you don't treat your husband the right way and you're haughty and you think you're better than he is. And it, it's, it's a really, um, um, uh, it's Idomeneus, I think is the name of the, uh, of the, um, of, uh, Apollo, um, not Apollo, Achilles son. I've got all my names mixed up today. Um, but, uh, yeah, the son of Achilles, um, is, uh, you know, um, Hermione is his wife and, uh, he's given, um, you know, and Andromache is given to him as a concubine and she does bear him a son. And when he goes away, Hermione threatens to kill her and her son. So she takes refuge in the temple of Thetis. So that's, I mean, that's, that's the play Andromache, but, but there, yes, you see, uh, Hermione accusing, you know, her just trying to justify her actions by accusing her of witchcraft. Um, so even though she's not an Aori, she's nonetheless, um, you know, this, this, this is seen, you know, it, it, infertility is seen as, could be seen as an attack from another person, but the Aori sometimes are also blamed and are, are considered to be responsible. And you also might think of the idea of changelings that they had, um, the idea that if you had a child that was very, very sick, that it somehow wasn't your child, that the fairies came and, um, stole your child and replaced it with this, um, uh, malformed or imperfect one in some fashion. And so then people did horrible things to the child to try to make the quote unquote real child come back. Um, it's not uncommon for this kind of thing to happen. And it, and it goes back to the idea that, um, yeah, or like I said, the displeasure of the gods. Um, Hera did lots of things to lots of women, so she frequently was a, was a force to blame. But, uh, but the Aori, these, these restless dead, you know, it, it, they, the way that they're, they're, they're regarded as these, uh, and they're not even regarded as entirely feminine. It's like they're these, um, these liminal forces, so they could be male or female, though they started out as female. And they represent this, um, you know, this lack of motherhood, this lack of doing the womanly duty, um, this lack of, um, and then of course, because they haven't, then it's like they try to stop other women from doing it. Um, so yeah, socially, um, you have to talk about what that, what that ends up representing. And even in our society today, which as I said, is not, is not based on the tribal oikos, but yet still seems to retain um, a lot of that idea within its structure. I mean, well, you think about it, you think about the way that people try to blame, um, poor morality on the lack of family values. I mean, it's another BS kind of, um, pandering to really this very, this idea that, you know, maybe it made sense at the time. I don't know. I'm not, not having lived during that time period. I'm not one to really judge how that, how that worked or how people felt about it. But certainly it was as difficult, I'm sure it was as difficult then as it is now for people who stepped outside the norm. And of course, um, in, in societies like that, 
everybody had to come together and, you know, for the benefit of the tribe. There wasn't, it wasn't until you started to have larger cities and diverse populations, um, you know, when you had people from all over, where the Oikos is no longer the, the central structure, where um, really the, po- um, the polis or the city or the city-state, as we think of it, becomes the, the structure. And again, you have people with different customs and different religions coming from different places. Um, and that, that brings a different kind of diversity. You don't need the family necessarily to expand because you're expanding your borders by admitting a diversity of people. But it's funny how especially people who are very pro-family and anti-immigration reject the one over the other. They want to go back to the Oikos model and, and reject the Polis model. Um, but... And the kind of society we live in now, probably something even beyond the polis model is important. But um, this, but this idea of of mar- of um, treating as as some kind of a a punishment or as some kind of a uh, uh, a curse or a threat, uh, these feminine forces or these forces that are these shape shifting forces um, that that have to do with uh, impulses that we don't. Um, you know, you know, it has to do with freedom. Okay. Um, here's a thought for you. Satanism, of course, is about freedom. Satanism is about rebellion. Now, this is not about Satanism, but the idea is that, you know, you, you see the roots of these ideas of, mon- you know, these monstrous figures and these, these cautionary tales um, about being devoured or about being dragged away or, or, you know, becoming a restless dead spirit come out of the idea of, you know, you violated a social norm. You know, you didn't do what you were, what you were expected to do biologically. Um, and so now, now you've become some other kind of a creature. And uh, similarly, that's the way that we, we viewed that. Um, I think there's actually a whole collection of essays on Satanism as an act of rebellion. I've, I've seen a few things on it recently. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. It's a rebellion against um, the prevailing... Um, religious and and cultural order and saying, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Not everybody can be shoehorned neatly into that, um, into that shoe. Um, (coughs) excuse me. So some food for thought there about the idea of these kinds of creatures, um, as representative of, um, you know, trying to keep people within certain social norms, um, and whether or not, um, these are relevant, and whether or not these kinds of figures actually um, have a relevance or a meaning beyond that. I mean, they may represent forces that are scary, but as we've often seen with these feminine forces, they can also sometimes be protective. So, um, and we have many, <clears throat> many more modern examples of the way in which um, independent female sexuality can be a problem. Um, one good example, and I know I've brought this up before, is the movie The Exorcist. Okay, Now, the original Exorcist, there was a boy called, I think they call him Roland Doe, is the name that's been given to him, or at least, you know, that was the one, is supposed to be the, the original subject of this, this exorcism. But the movie is about a girl named Reagan and her mother, and her mother, of course, is what? She's a single mother, she's an actress, she's successful, she's independent. And Reagan is coming into Menarch, she's, she's um, coming into puberty, and she starts fooling around with Ouija boards and stuff. So, in other words, she's kind of interested in, quote-unquote, witchcraft, which I don't consider interested in Ouija board being an interested in witchcraft. But nonetheless, spiritism, looking at, you know, the other side, crossing the boundary you're not supposed to cross. And what happens to her? She becomes possessed by a demon. Ironically, Pazuzu, who is actually a demon that 
protects women in childbirth has in fact exact opposite effect of a Lamash to or a you know a type of a creature or a galu so it's uh, it's it's kind of funny and ironic but um but yeah but that's the idea of uh-oh coming into her sexual own with a mother who's sexually independent we can't have that it's going to turn her into a monster um you know, she's going to be preyed upon, and, you know, now she's going to become some other kind of creature. So that may be a more more recent example of the kind of thing that we're talking about when we talk about the way in which these uh, this monstrous feminine uh, ends up becoming portrayed and, uh, and, what, and what, the, what the problem is, really, with doing that. Um, what, you know, it, it, it really gets at the heart of, here you are afraid of the dark feminine, what is it you're actually afraid of here? You know, why, you know, what is, what is the insistence still on maintaining a social and cultural norm and, you know, what was considered to be a biological destiny that no longer is. Uh, That's going to be it for now, because I, I could really talk about this subject for a long time. I want to thank you again for listening. Um, Please visit all my work at chthonia.net. If you would like to support my work, please visit patreon.com slash chthonia. On social media, I'm chthonia podcast. Two words on Facebook, one word on Instagram and Twitter, and just Chthonia on YouTube. And thanks again for listening. Until the next episode. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.